0: Welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Someru. Hey everybody, this week, we're talking about AI in radiology. And my guest is Prashant warrior and he is the co-founder and CEO of cure.ai. And if you know anything about AI in radiology, you may well have heard of that company. So Prashant's an expert in the field of artificial intelligence and deep learning. He's architected and commercialized many, many, many different data science solutions in his 15 year career from men's fashion to trucking. And we spend most of the uh, podcast talking about men's fashion and data science, I think. But anyway, he's a very prolific researcher, author, speaker on all sorts of topics relating to data science and machine learning. So I have no doubt you're going to learn a lot of different things about how to grow a company in this space from Prashant. He is extremely passionate about using deep learning to make healthcare affordable and accessible. So I hope you enjoy. Great, so Prashant, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning, sir?
1: I'm doing great, uh, James. Uh, It's uh, awesome to be here
0: and look forward to talking to you. Awesome. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Prashant? I'm in Mumbai. Oh, very nice. uh, Yeah, this is the
1: uh, the heart of coronavirus uh, in India.
0: And oh, uh, wow. Yeah, of course. What's of it like, what's it like over there? What's everyone doing? Are they, are they socially isolating? Is it, is it desolate and, and dead or is it, um, is it busy still?
1: No. So I've been out like two or three times to buy grocery over the last, uh, month and a half uh, that we have been in lockdown. And, uh, um, I can say that, uh, a lot of people are on lockdown, but there are, I mean, there are people on the road. I mean, there are people walking, uh, yeah. driving and so on. And I mean, India, it's also hard to enforce such a lockdown, right? There are areas where there are like millions of people in like a a two square mile radius. And uh,
0: And it's getting warm, I suppose, now as well.
1: It's very hot. Yeah, it's very hot outside. In fact, I was just outside. I was just walking around the house, uh, talking on the phone. And uh, I was so sweaty that my wife was asking me if I just had a workout.
0: Just from being on the phone. Oh my gosh.
1: Yes, <laughs> but from walking around on the, in the house, uh, being on the phone uh, on calls, right? Wow. It, it's hard. It's hard outside, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, oh God. It's, it's such it's such challenging times. I hadn't even considered, you know, things like climate in areas like India. I mean, that, well, I mean. I mean, I mean the other
1: thing is that there are so many people packed into a single house in certain areas, right? I mean, the density yeah. is very high in a city like Bombay, for example, Mumbai, for example, right? And you've got like, Uh, five or six people living in a single room house and how can you socially isolate how can you socially distance in that kind of an environment it's it's extremely hard (sighs) incredibly you cannot you cannot remain cooped in throughout the day you have to venture out I mean so uh, it's definitely I think enforcing a lockdown in India is hard and uh, I mean uh, yesterday was probably the worst day in terms of the number of cases in India so uh, hopefully I don't know I mean it was actually trending flat for a while but Uh, Yesterday was bad for India as well as for Mumbai. Um, let us see how, how that progresses over the
0: next Yeah, episode. and this will probably go out in about six weeks time so who knows what uh, what world we'll be living in at that point and whether we're still in lockdown or some version of it, but I assume we will, but obviously good to know that you guys and I suppose you specifically are part of the solution, right, with everything that you're doing with Cure.ai, so I'm really excited to you know get into your background and hear how you got to where you are and then obviously to talk about the company, everything that you're doing, particularly to help with coronavirus at the moment, it's, a, it's an awesome story so yeah it'd be great for our listeners Prashant if you could uh, if you could start by telling us a little bit about you and and, and your story absolutely
1: um so my background uh, I mean I I grew up in a very small town um in India uh it was a town of about I mean small in India still pretty big it was a town of about <laughs> <laughs> a town of about I think 200,000 people or so uh and it was a steel city so everything was around i mean my father used to work in the steel plant and uh, everybody in that uh, town were associated with the steel plant so either they were working in the steel plant or their spouses were working in the steel plant and uh, so it was it was a uh, steel city um, uh, and yeah. uh, so grew up there i mean there was uh, public schooling there uh, and so grew up uh, in that city very small town so i mean obviously you know a lot of people i mean it's a a small community so that way i mean uh, very sort of, what came, what should I call it, it was very secure, uh, not mm. very, I mean, safe in general, I mean, not too much crime and so yeah. on. Uh, so grew up in like a, I, I would say, very safe and secure environment. Uh, uh, though, I mean, I think when we were growing up, it was uh, difficult times in India also. I mean, uh, India has um, grown a lot since the time that I was in school. And uh, when I was in school, I mean, we had um, very little, I mean, in terms of um, all, I mean, eating out or I mean, just just uh, stepping out of the house for food I mean it was something like once in a month or so right this is about 20-25 wow. years ago uh, versus nowadays I mean kids uh, I mean step out all the time and it's very common for kids to eat out I mean I can say that, that all my schooling years I probably went out with friends for uh, for uh, eating out maybe rarely and maybe like four or five times so wow uh, it was very very uncommon back then and uh, I think India was a closed economy so when when I was uh, in, in school, I mean, India was um, following sort of somewhere between socialism um, and um, not not necessarily capitalistic at all, mm. right? So it was more socialist kind of um, country, yeah. a lot of public sector enterprises and so on. And um, so we, we were a different country then and we uh, got liberalized uh, somewhere uh, in the 1990s. And that is when the economy started growing. And that is when uh, foreign companies started coming into the um, into India and started setting up yeah. factories here, offices here, and so on. So over the last 25-30 uh, years, we have really, really uh, changed. I mean, India has uh, radically changed. And then I spent about 10 years in the US. Uh, so I was in the US from 2000 to 2011. And I can certainly say that that 10-year period, I mean, it is probably one of the highest growth periods. Because when I went to the US, I, I had a different perception of India. And when I moved back, I could see that it's a it's a completely different society that I came back to.
0: Wow. And I find that sometimes if I go back to Wolverhampton where I grew up, even though it's probably, there's probably like two shops that have changed and I'm like, Oh, it's just changed so much. I don't even recognize it anymore. (laughs) Whereas I suppose 10 years in the nineties in India, it's probably completely unrecognizable. right. With the amount of stuff that that has gone on there in terms of gray.
1: Yeah. And and if you look at it, right. I mean, um, the, uh, wealthy people in India probably live uh, have got a standard of living which is uh, very comparable, sometimes even better than the standard of living for wealthy people in, uh, let's say, a U.S. Um, or yeah. a UK or some of the developed countries. So, if you are wealthy, you you live pretty well in India. Uh, of course, there is pollution and traffic that is always there, but outside of that, uh, you you do have a, uh, mm. a very good life. I mean, that was not true about twenty years back, and there was a very very different standard of living uh, between India and other countries, but that's, that's sort of changing now. But of course, I mean, the number of poor people in India is very high and, uh, that is not changing. I mean, the wealth gap between the rich and the poor is increasing as is across all of the world. And that is happening in India as well.
0: Hmm. So what did you do in the U S for 10 years?
1: So I, I, uh, I studied engineering, uh, here in India, I studied at one of the, um, a better um, engineering colleges in India called IIT Indian Institute of Technology mm. And um, so I went to Delhi which is the capital of India studied engineering there and then I went to the US uh, to do a PhD in operations research so I was doing a lot of um, uh, a lot of data science work back when there was no concept of data I was science
0: say, wow data science in the late 90s that's
1: amazing <laughs> it, this is early 2000 so I, I went data, to the US in 2001 but yeah, I was doing uh, a lot of optimization, uh, demand modeling, demand forecasting, wow. merchandise planning. I mean, a lot of things, a lot of those kinds of things uh, in the early 2000s. And um, um, a lot of my my PhD was actually focused on tracking networks. So we were optimizing uh, how uh, you should transport shipments from origin to destination. And of course, I mean, uh, one, one truck would have obviously can fit in different types of shipments, can have many different... Uh, kinds of, um, uh, I mean, there'll be, uh, let's say, furniture which is very big, right? Yeah. And uh, not maybe that heavy versus, let's say, some other some other things, let's say, books which are heavier uh, but smaller. So uh, you're trying to fit in all of that, then you're basically trying to, let's say, when you move something from um, one city to, uh, let's say, I mean, New York to Los Angeles, you're moving it cross country, and yeah. uh, you, you probably move it through like ten different trucks. I mean, one shipment might go through. 10 different trucks uh, in that duration. And so how do you manage that? How do you manage the drivers? So driver optimization, uh, there are many (laughs) rules around, many rules around how much, how many hours drivers can work, very much like airline crew. So they can only work a certain number of hours. They can only drive for a certain number of hours in a day. And so those are department of transportation rules. So uh, we had to optimize everything within these constraints to make sure that uh, we are minimizing the cost um, for the the trucking company uh, while Uh, delivering all these shipments on time. So that was a a very large scale optimization problem with um, um, millions of variables. And um, at that time, obviously the the speed at which you could process these, uh, the the, the, um, uh, processor speeds and CPU speeds were much lower. So um, you could not, I mean, the kind of computing power you have now was not available then. So we had to really come up with uh, a lot of uh, heuristic ideas to solve these problems. And even then it took sometimes a day to optimize, sometimes like 10 hours to run an optimization problem like this. So we're working with wow. some trucking companies where we would start the uh, running the algorithms. So every day you would get a new uh, bunch of shipments and you would basically run the algorithm at the um, end of the day. And yeah. then that would run overnight and by next day morning you would get out of the <laughs> So <laughs> it was wow. a, a different different era in terms and of- when you were um, when you were doing
0: that- you know, optimizing obviously for the trucking companies and all that sort of thing. You know, the, the in a great amount of data and, and different you know rules that you're putting on it, all the rest of it, and and you know even quantifying that stuff is is probably the first problem that you've got to solve. But I imagine you know when you're doing that in the early two thousands and you're and you're doing such you know like large scale op- uh, optimizations for for that industry, you must have been thinking this could be applied in loads of different things i mean was that was that something that was on your mind that you might one day end up in healthcare? you might end up doing all these i mean were you, were you looking at it in terms of the opportunity of, of data science as a sector because it sounds like you were really early through the door of this
1: so at that time i mean uh, to be honest i mean today i mean it's so cool to be a data scientist i mean it's one of the most uh why hey, rock stars now, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it was not so back then. Like my first job out of uh, the PhD program was, I was called a research scientist too. And uh, yeah,
0: okay.
1: what I was doing was basically what data scientists do nowadays, but uh, yeah. it was uh, it was not called data science. And uh, I mean, of course, uh, I mean, when I was doing my PhD, I, I this this whole optimization techniques, I was applying it to, let's say, um, trucking scheduling, right? But you could yeah. apply it to airline scheduling or you could apply it to, uh, other areas in logistics and supply chain. Uh, where I went to school, Georgia Tech was basically known for its uh, logistics and supply chain expertise. So lots of professors were okay. uh, had was researchers in that space. And that's why I got into this. Uh, but certainly applications are there in computer architecture in many different applications. So you could you could apply it in many different uh, areas. And um, mm. so uh, going out of uh, I mean, graduating out of the PhD program, I definitely knew that uh, I'd be doing different things, but I never imagined that I'd be working in healthcare. Yeah, that was not not a thought that entered my mind back then. In fact, I would even say that maybe even five years, six years back, I did not think that uh, we would I'd be in healthcare. So it's a it's something that happened out of the blue, and I mean, we started doing what we are doing now, and, yeah. uh, and and here we are.
0: Were you hobby coding as well? Were you were you coding in your own life to solve problems and and building little bits and bobs? And was that something that you were always doing? so uh, so uh, i didn't get that question can you can you? were you were you hobby coding as in were you coding for a hobby when you sort of went home were you developing little programs to solve problems in your own life is that something that you were doing too
1: i was doing some of that actually i mean uh, very little actually i would say because uh, i mean the phd program itself required me to do a lot of coding <laughs> and i would yeah. i would go back uh, work on my laptop write my code and i think uh, most of the code that I was writing was for uh, my work. I mean, Fine. Uh, both both when I was uh, doing my PhD as well as when I was working. So, sure. uh, not so much
0: ho- hobby coding. So, what did you what did you optimize next after trucking? So, next
1: thing that uh, we were working on was um, demand forecasting. Um, so, we started with uh, forecasting demand for stuff like everyday stuff like let's say a bottle of milk or a hamburger um, um, or a bun. So we were forecasting demands for everyday objects, everyday uh, grocery items in um, stores such as Safeway or Albertsons um, and so on. And so that was; those are uh, perennial items, right? So you're you're not; they don't have a, a a seasonal flow. I mean, they definitely have a lot of seasonality, but uh, they're not uh, a single season item. So after that, we went to fashion. Fashion is very seasonal because I mean, a shirt comes in uh, in the fall fa- fall so, season, yeah. and it'll not it'll not be uh, there after uh, spring. I mean, it'll probably yeah. be sold out by spring. So uh, you are basically you have to figure out how much uh, a particular piece of fashion is going to sell uh, in its uh, life lifetime, right? So is it going to be a, a, a bestseller product mm-hmm. or is it going to be a product which is uh, not going to sell a lot? And um, we were um, forecasting that, which is a tougher forecasting problem versus forecasting the sales of milk. Mm-hmm. And so there are many factors that go into it, right? So uh, if there is seasonality, of course. I mean, if you um, if you launch a, a jacket in the summer, maybe not so useful because you're obviously, I mean, people are not going to be wearing jackets in summer in many parts of the, uh, I was in the US then, so many parts of the US. Um, and uh, so you're looking for certain kinds of uh, fashion items and then you have to look at similar items, right? So how did similar items perform in the past, right? So you're looking at uh, how uh, a certain fashion uh, performed in the in the past. I was going to
0: say, how do you define similar in fashion? I mean, even that kind of labeling is uh, is quite challenging, I imagine.
1: So similarity is uh, doable. I mean, you can uh, if you look at a let's say a men's shirt, which is probably one of the easiest categories. Yeah. But <laughs> you're uh, looking at collar versus uh, no collar, the style of the button, the style of the, um, yeah. the, the Cough right it's
0: amazing just how much of this is data driven actually that i you know i hadn't i mean i suppose why would i have thought about this but i've not really thought about the how how you know retail do their stock and actually you know forecast how much they're going to sell and how much they make and of, of it and all i you know i've never even thought about it but as you say data science will, will just be part of so 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 much of our entire economy
1: yeah, and this is, I'm, I'm talking about about 12 years ago. So 2008 is when I was that's doing 12 it. 12 years ago, wow.
0: 14.
1: Yeah. So, uh, but that's that's very, very interesting, right? I mean, so you're, you're basically uh, ordering a shirt uh, from, most of these are manufactured in, let's say, Asia or China. I mean, in Asia primarily, right? And so once you order a certain quantity, you're not going to order it again. I mean, it'll take you a while to manufacture and get the uh, second shipment. So yeah. you have to figure out exactly how much to order. You want to order... 100 units or 500 units or 1000 units. And you have to figure out exactly how much to order by size. I mean, so you've got sizes and colors, also, right? Let's say you have got the shirt in like blue, green, yellow, orange, and then you have to figure out (laughs) how many of each color. And let's say you also have to figure out how much of each size. So how many, how many of double XL, how many of XL, how many of large and so on. So there is a lot of um, complicated math in there. And um, one is to uh, figure out the order quantity so that uh, you have to, you have to look at uh, the style itself and uh, and link it back to historical styles and see how they performed yeah. and based upon that you can predict how much uh, that style is going to st- sell so it is more of assortment planning and assortment optimization uh, so you you order a certain quantity based upon that and once it is in the store right this is where um, most more of our algorithms were used Is that once it is in store let's say you have this style uh, which is come into the stores um, um let's say uh, two weeks ago the first two weeks, you can clearly see how it is going to sell over the rest of its uh, yeah. life cycle. You can clearly see that it's going to be a bestseller or not, right? It, if it is, I mean, it'll sell, uh, let's say, 200 units versus if it's not, it'll sell only maybe 20 units. So that kind of uh, at that time, now you, can, you have to forecast how it is going to sell over the rest of the uh, life cycle of that product. And based upon that, you need to make pricing decisions. Mm. So typically, I mean, these kinds of fashion products um, come in at a base price. And then, uh, which is the list price, let's say, uh, $50. And very, very soon, within a month, they, would, could, they could be, not necessarily would be, but they could be marked down to, uh, let's say, $35 and then going down to maybe $20, $15. Um, I've seen products uh, of $50 sell at $10 also. So I've seen some of these marked down substantially because stock is still remaining in the stores and uh, they're not sold out. And what do you do? If, you're, if, you, if the stock is not sold, then you basically have to um, give it away.
0: That's it right that's yeah. it you know I didn't think i'd uh I'd be talking to you about the price of men's shirts on the, <laughs> on the health tech podcast but it's incredibly fascinating and actually it's it's given me it, it's given me a real idea of, of um, just how important data science actually is in, in so much of what we do and I suppose for you as well when you were learning this stuff and you know you' you've done it in trucking you've done it in retail you've done it in something else like at this point you know 2010 ish i imagine we're at now in the story or slightly later you know you've you've helped predict so much you've helped make things optimized and accurate i mean at this point being an entrepreneurial person was this the point at which you're you're thinking hold on a minute i can start optimizing things and predicting things for myself here i might i might wrap a company around this and do some things is that is that fair
1: so I think uh, a lot of this started when I was in the US working for uh, SAP, where um, I, I had a manager, I mean, who was um, extremely supportive of us uh, trying out different techniques, trying out uh, different ideas. And nice. um, I think that that helped. Uh, I mean, and of course, the PhD program itself. I mean, I had advisors who would um, provide great guidance to me on how um, I could um, build out new technologies. Right. And so I think, I mean, I always um, built out the capability to uh, think new, uh, think of new ideas and uh, explore how we could solve a problem differently. And uh, that was always there. And I think that came through in my first job as well. And it was a small team. I mean, when I was working in SAP. It was a small team of about six people initially. And uh, we grew into about uh, 40, 50 in a matter of a year. Uh, and that was primarily because, I mean, the whole organization realized that this is the core data science team and data science is really picking up now big data as it was called back then. And Mm -hmm. uh, we built out a large big data team then. I mean, when we grew that team, I was very involved in that growth and hiring and uh, overall managing the whole um, team and the organization uh, at that point. So I think that's where I I sort of felt like I could uh, become an entrepreneur myself. And uh, technology always has been uh, a forte for me. So I, I was... Uh, always uh, interested in becoming a technology entrepreneur. And uh, that led me back to India. So I I had to come back to India. And then once I came back to India, I worked for a year, but then I I went out and uh, started up a company of my own um, pretty one year after I came back to India.
0: Which company was that? So
1: that was a company called Imagna. And um, we were doing a lot of uh, advertising technology. Oh, cool. Uh, so we were—I mean—so uh, we were working with a lot of these uh, e-commerce companies. So at that time, I mean, when I when I moved back to India, that was a time when e-commerce was uh, really booming in India. So all of yeah. uh, these new—I mean, new-age uh, e-commerce companies like a Flipkart or a Snapdeal, uh, Amazon just came in then, right? So there were many e-commerce companies coming into India, and it was it was growing pretty big, uh, very quickly, and there was a lot of funding for those kinds of companies as well. And um, one of the things that was missing in India at that point was uh, in in the US, that was there, whereas there is very sophisticated um, ad algorithms, right? So they they can understand. I mean, you can see that now. I mean, where I mean, ads that are, come to you as banner ads or I mean, as display ads are very much customized to your your specific browsing yeah. history or uh, what you have bought before, right? Uh, at that time, it was not there in India, and um, one of the things that uh, we did was we we tied up with. Uh, a lot of e-commerce companies to create kind of a, um, a, a what shall I call it? I mean a, a, a consortium of e-commerce companies where we were collecting data from different types of e-commerce, from travel to um, shows to um, apparel uh, to uh, other kinds of e-commerce goods, right? And so you could um, you could combine all of that data to create a very good understanding of the customer. Now you are, you know exactly what the customer bought, uh, and you know that I mean they are they bought a ticket to go to a beach, and maybe they want to buy beachwear. So, uh, of course, the rules are not man-made. I mean, rules are not thought through like this. The rules are generated using a AI algorithm. So, the algorithm is mining the data to figure out what uh, somebody might buy next. So, it's basically predicting each person's probability of buying uh, a specific category next. So, yeah. for example, my probability of buying apparel next uh, versus buying, let's say, uh, a show show booking next versus buying a travel yeah. ticket or a hotel or yeah. so on so It was predicting that and based upon that, then you could target ads at those individuals using a real-time bidding platform. So that was what uh, we were working on. Though I I would say it was not um, extremely successful in the sense that uh, the technology was very good. But um, about 2015, uh, what happened in India was that a lot of the e-commerce companies decided to go mobile only. And uh, when you're mobile only, you cannot drop cookies. So cookies are a critical part of third party cookies are a critical part of all of these ad tech. all I mean, at that time, it was mostly all of the ads were driven off of third party cookies. And Mm. so um, when we when we go mobile only, then you cannot really do that. So a lot of our partners went mobile only. And uh, then we realized that, OK, I mean, this is not a a business that can scale up because if everybody is going mobile, uh, then it may not be a.
0: You've sustainable business
1: so yeah. at so that time um this company called fractal analytics uh, where i had worked briefly for a for a year uh, in 2011 uh so they uh, i mean i, I was good uh, friends with the ceo of fractal and uh he reached out and he they wanted to acquire uh, our our technology and also get me back into fractal that's so, a
0: nice lifeline that's that's lovely <laughs> great timing
1: <laughs> so uh, about 2015 uh End end of 2015 is when uh, I, I uh, that that company Imagna, got acquired by Fractal, and I joined Fractal as uh, chief data scientist.
0: Nice, what a title! And what a network you obviously had to just get a quick acquisition done when you'd reached your ceiling as a company. I mean, yeah, it, I suppose it, that's the the value of being in data science since the the, the 90s, right? And your network must just be incredible amongst, amongst those types of people. But let's talk about Cure or Cure.ai. How do you like it to be said? Is it Cure.ai or is it Cure?
1: We say both. I mean, Cure and Cure.ai. Cure becomes, uh, I think, a very generic term because... Cure can be spelled C-U-R-E-Q-U-R-E. When you or Deir, it, it becomes a little bit more specific, yeah.
0: Cool, okay, so let's talk about Cure then. So, you know, at this point in your career, you've, you've optimized and, and done loads of different things for loads of different sectors. Why healthcare? How did that happen? And talk to me about the early days of coming up with this idea and how you turn that idea into reality.
1: So when I I mean, I mean mentioned uh, the previous acquisition, my company got acquired by Fractal. And uh, at that time, um, I was talking to Srikant, who is the CEO of Fractal. Um, I, I mean, we were talking practically um, twice a week uh, on uh, what I could do within the company. I mean, of course, my title was Chief Data Scientist, but um, Fractal is a services company. And uh, I consider myself more product focused, and uh, building products um, has been more of my strength. So. Mm. Um, we, were, we were looking at many different so I, I basically we uh, agreed that okay the best thing for me to do is to incubate a product startup uh, within Fractal Analytics so with funding from Fractal Analytics oh, and nice. that, that is what we did I mean so uh, and and then uh, Srikant and I were um, brainstorming on uh, many different ideas so we looked at um, I mean like I mentioned fashion which was an area that I worked yeah. on in the past right uh, we looked at um, uh, kids toys I mean maybe building smart <laughs> uh, toys for kids using uh. AI, looking at, looking at uh, a lot of uh, different ideas, but uh, then we looked at AI in the space of uh, radiology and pathology. So I, I'll talk about why we uh, went into this, right? It was a very um, conscious decision to go into healthcare. So one of the reasons was that healthcare was one space where AI had not yet penetrated. I mean, you could see that uh, health uh, healthcare itself was uh, ripe for disruption. It is still ripe for disruption. Uh, and uh, I think um, healthcare was still very backward in terms of the use of technology and the use of AI. So we said, yeah. this is an area where you can really um, disrupt uh, the space using AI, number one. Number two, if you look at um, uh, the machine learning algorithms and the deep learning algorithms that were um, available back then, even now, um, they were primarily, I mean, the best use case for uh, these deep learning algorithms always was about understanding images, right? Traditionally, Mm. I mean, understanding images was always hard for uh, algorithms, because how do you tell an algorithm what is a cat, right, you, you basically define a cat by defining all the different features of the cat, which is its eyes, its nose, its um, uh, fur, or its tail, all of that, right, which is very difficult, you cannot give it that many rules for one one item, which is one cat, and then you uh, encounter a different type of cat and the algorithm fails. (laughs) And then you have got like, millions of different kinds of objects. So you cannot really train an algorithm that way. So that is why traditional computer vision was never successful and when deep learning came about, it was basically what it was able to do is you could pass it a million images, half of which could contain cats, and half of which could be other objects. Hmm. And uh, you could run that through a deep learning, an artificial neural network algorithm, and it will be able to identify what a cat is. So you don't have to tell it explicitly what a cat is just by giving it data, label data. So there is label saying that this image is a cat. Yeah. This image is not a cat, right? And you've yeah. got millions such images, and then you are able to um, train an algorithm. So that became very powerful because labeling is easy. I mean, you can label a million images pretty quickly, right? And there is a lot of data to label. So uh, so you can uh, do that uh, well. And so that is where uh, we said that okay, I mean, I think uh, the real value for AI and deep learning uh, is in healthcare, and specifically in healthcare, it is in areas where. Imaging is very common. So we said, let's look at radiology and pathology. Yeah. And so we started doing that. So uh, that's when we hired my co-founder. So she came in, she was working out of Amsterdam. Her name is Pooja Rao. And um, she, she was in Amsterdam at that point. And so we connected on LinkedIn actually. I just reached out to her saying that we are looking at setting very up cool. the startup. We didn't even have a name called Cure at that time. So we <laughs> said, this is a startup that uh, we are setting up and would you want to come and join?
0: What made you reach out to her specifically?
1: So I was, uh, I mean, I, it's actually hard to remember exactly uh, <laughs> what happened back then, but uh, I, I was looking for Just any profiles. data
0: scientist anywhere in the world, <laughs> just picked one.
1: No, no, yeah. of course. I mean, not, not any data scientist. <laughs> I think she has got a very, very uh, specific skill set. So she's a doctor, medical doctor, Yeah. Uh, who has been, um, she, she's worked in neuroscience, mm-hmm, and yeah. she became a data scientist. So she's a doctor, okay. a data scientist, and a PhD. So I mean, she's got a varied experience, and I think, a perfect fit for a health tech startup like ours right Absolutely. so uh, I, I think she i mean when i saw her profile i said yeah this is exactly what we need because she has an understanding of both medicine as well as data science which is yeah. critical for us so uh, yeah
0: the the people on this podcast now are just expecting me to go off on the usual rant that i do about how having you know two different specialties be it you know medicine and data science just lined you up for this sort of thing and it's you know here's another example of it right i mean someone that clearly has an interest in both of those things that didn't want to be just going down the route of one you explore both you put yourself in the shop window for people like yourself to get in touch and uh, and end up starting a company with so yeah no that that makes complete sense
1: exactly i think i think that was a, a good partnership because i mean she got in the the healthcare angle uh, i got in the data science part of it and then uh we put put together a good team uh, pretty quickly we we hired really uh, good data scientists and uh, the other thing that we did, uh, very quickly is that we were looking at both radiology and pathology, but within six months, we figured out that pathology may not be something that can be disrupted easily because it is not fully digital yet. Right? Yes. So, uh, unlike radiology where, I mean, from the time that an X-ray is generated to the time that it is reported and reports provided, in, yeah. uh, everything is digitized versus pathology yeah. where, uh, the, uh, uh the biopsy itself is, uh, we we're looking at. Uh, cancer, I mean, looking at cancer and uh, doing some specific things around ovarian cancer at that point of time. So those processes are still very manual, uh, creating, I mean, getting the biopsy, creating the slide, uh, then taking pictures of that slide. So all of that is a manual process. Once Mm. the pictures are taken, you can process it using AI, but but, uh, that is only solving one part. And for radiology, I mean, integrating into the workflow of a radiologist and providing AI was, uh, we felt was much easier. So uh, we said, okay, let's focus only on radiology.
0: The you know, that's, thing- a, that's a really interesting point that I just want to bring up there, that extremely early on in you defining you know, the problem that you were going to solve and you know, any potential products and solutions, you've said it so flippantly there, but I think it's so important that you realized very soon on how much easier it would be to integrate into the clinical workflow of a radiologist. I think that is a really interesting point that you understand the fact that at the end of the day, that's the biggest problem to solve, which is you can have the best product in the world. But if it doesn't integrate into the clinical workflow, it won't get adopted. And I think it's that that's what that's really interesting to me because you don't have, you personally don't have a huge background in healthcare, but clearly, you know, Pooja, who's come in from being a ground floor clinician with the knowledge of data science obviously understands the clinical workflow of, of how doctors work probably has a good network into radiologists that you guys can ask a lot of questions when you're developing it but i think i just want to highlight that as just a really important part that that you know, clearly not by luck clearly by judgment you made that decision early and it was the right path to walk because uh, the adoption of things is, in healthcare is is always the most difficult. So, yeah, kudos for realizing that very early on.
1: No, I, I, think, I think it was a choice. I mean, I would say that even the other choice may not have been bad. I mean, there are uh, companies like Path.ai which have grown pretty big in the pathology space. So uh, certainly there are opportunities. Maybe the direction that we would have gone would have been very different. But I think the primary realization, I mean, I think what you pointed out is very, very very relevant that we realize that it's going to be hard for us to integrate into the workflow and pathology. But also what the other realization was that as a product company, it is never a good idea to build a lot of products, right? You should have a very focused (laughs) product portfolio and you should not be building like a a pathology product and a radiology product and uh, something in genomics. And so uh, you have to bring in focus very quickly Mm -hmm. uh, rather than late. And so the sooner you focus, the sooner you'll have products which succeed because otherwise, you don't go deep enough to build a really compelling
0: product. I love that. The sooner you focus, the sooner you'll have products that succeed. I'll probably stick that on a few images when I, uh, when I advertise this podcast episode. That's a wonderful quote. And it's so true because you could have had products in all those things. Once you get the data set, it's completely within your capability to go and do that and your team. But it's, it's interesting, isn't it? But I think, you know, particularly in healthcare, when you focus down on one problem to solve, you end up learning that problem in such detail that you can figure out a way of actually getting it adopted and it working. And yeah, I'm completely with you. Love that quote. So tell me then, you, what was the exact problem that you wanted to solve initially then? You talk about this focus and, and you know, drilling down into one problem. What, what was it, the, the one problem that you wanted to solve initially?
1: So that is also a very good question. And again, I think we went through <laughs> many things, right? So there's always, I mean, uh, in healthcare, this is, and in all kinds of AI products, data is always a challenge, right? And yeah, absolutely. With deep learning algorithms, I mean, if you don't have um, hundreds of thousands of scans or maybe even millions of scans or millions of images, you don't really uh, get good accuracy, good generalizability and so on. And um, initially, I mean, when we uh, started doing this, we did not have access to any of our own data. We had a lot of online data sets. There were brain tumor data sets. There were lung nodule data sets. How did you uh, get those
0: data sets out of interest? Uh,
1: they were free uh, open source data sets. Oh, okay, so they were, they were, cool. On different websites, right? So we started working on some of those problems. We published some things uh, around those. We started working, on, working with Yale University on some uh, cardiac, um, um, some cardiac failure problems, and so we, we started working, we said, okay, let's get into the uh, uh, get into the pool and we'll learn how to swim, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we started working on some problems, and we I, I think we solved a lot of things at that point for the first three, four months, which uh, we have never commercialized, right, and uh, we, we have built uh, a lot of technology, which is still there, I mean, we still have that technology, but uh, it's not part of our commercial uh, uh, portfolio, and uh, what we did in that duration also was get a lot of radiology advisors, talk to several radiologists around the world, uh, India, US, um, UK, Middle East, and so on, and figure out um, what are the kinds of problems that we should be solving. And uh, the answers came out to be chest x-ray and head CT. So these were the top two answers uh, for uh, specifically, I mean, which kind of modalities are worth interpreting automatically. And chest x-rays for the volume and the um, lack of uh, enough reading ability. I mean, it's not being read by radiologists in most countries. It is it takes days to get it right. I mean, um, yeah. and people are not interested in reading x-rays. So on, there are many different challenges to test x-rays. And the other one was uh, interpreting head CD scans because that is where it is life and death. You're basically, you have to read yep. a head CD scan immediately so that you can uh, figure out if somebody has trauma or stroke and then uh, take a, a, a appropriate action. So uh, these two were the areas that we picked up. But then, then the question was, I mean, one of the things that we did really well was, I can tell you that the first year uh, of Cure, I mean, I was on the road just getting access to data. I mean, mm. uh, that and that is something that we cracked very early on is we we got access to uh, a large amount of data. Even like in 2017, um, 17, back about three years ago, we had access to about four or five million scans. And uh, that has only wow. increased now. Today, we have access to about eight million scans or so. Wow. But we had access to a huge amount of data to train our algorithms. And uh, that has been a, a a critical success factor for us because as uh, we always started with more data, so we had more um, accurate algorithms. And then, of course, that accurate algorithms means that clients are more likely to adopt
0: it and so on. Absolutely. And so the, 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 the problems that you're solving now, so, so talk to me about what Cure.ai is doing right now because you guys have achieved some great scale you know you're you're pretty groundbreaking in terms of getting ai through the door of hospitals getting it actually used you know there are a few ai companies similar that are are doing similar things but obviously you guys are are in you know multiple different sites um around the world you're you've got a specific COVID 19 product that you've got as well so talk to me about where you guys are at right now and and the different things that you're up to around the world
1: so we are doing um our our product portfolio is primarily focused around uh, a chest x-ray and a, a head CT solution. So we can interpret chest x-rays, we can interpret head CTs, And uh, a chest x-ray interpretation, we can detect whether an x-ray is normal or abnormal. If it is abnormal, we can detect uh, about 20 different abnormalities. We can tell you uh, which part of the lung is affected, uh, which uh, specific lobe is uh, affected uh, or infected, and uh, we can uh, contour out the abnormal region. So we can uh, create pretty much a radiologist-like report. In fact, one of the things that I like to say is that I, I want to uh, do a Turing test uh, at some point of time which uh, compares our reporting to a radiologist reporting and see if uh, we can pass that Turing test because my, uh, my, 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 sense, my sense is that we are very close to doing that.
0: <laughs> and what do you mean by passing that test? Do you mean equally as accurate or do you mean that somebody is unable to tell whether it's a human or a, or a, a machine? So
1: I think the accuracy uh, test we have done, accuracy test, uh, accuracy test has been done by Harvard, done by um, uh, Stop TV Partnership, many different organizations around the world. And uh, from an accuracy perspective, we are um, as or more accurate than um, an average radiologist at interpreting an x-ray. So or wow. even good radiologist interpreting. So accuracy test is done. I'm, I'm more interested in doing like, okay, I mean, you've got 100 x-rays which are reported. So even the language part of it is important, right? Yeah. I mean, just being able to say, okay, there is a cavity is only one part of what a radiologist does, we are able to say there is a cavity in the uh, upper left lobe, right? And then Mm -hmm. um, we can even say what the volume of that cavity is, for example. So we can do all of that. And so if you were to, my my point is that if you had 100 x-rays reported, 50 reported by radiologists, 50 reported by algorithm, uh, and if you ask somebody to uh, label them whether they are reported by the algorithm or by a radiologist, uh, would they, I mean, be able to identify which ones were reported by the algorithm? and mm. how frequently would they be able to identify that is that 50 50 in which case we will actually be passing the turing test so something <laughs> like that you don't know whether a report is created by the algorithm or by a radiologist. so that's, yeah that's what
0: and so around the world then what are what of those you know of the things that you can do what are hospitals buying from you and what are they getting your technology to do for them
1: so uh, when we started doing this, uh, we saw, I mean, one of the challenges, uh, one of the biggest burdens on uh, India from a disease perspective is tuberculosis. Uh, and so one of the first use cases was around tuberculosis screening. So uh, what uh, the, the uh, ground truth test for tuberculosis, the um, what is the gold standard test for tuberculosis is uh, what is called the gene expert uh, test, um, which is uh, not not available everywhere, and it is, um, a little bit expensive, it's about uh, 20, $20 odd on average uh, across the world uh, for a test. And uh, it is um, also takes about uh, takes a few hours to do for, for each patient. So what programs uh, around the world, tuberculosis t- t- screening programs around the world have been doing is uh, rather than uh, test everybody using that microbiological test, it's a sputum test. You take sputum and then you pass it through that uh, test. Uh, rather than do that sputum test, they would actually um, take an x-ray. And see if the X-ray is has got any tuberculosis indications. Uh, uh, any, if any tuberculosis indications are seen on the X-ray, and if they are, then they would uh, go for the sputum test. So um, we, we, I mean, so of course the X-rays were read by radiologists, and the challenge is that a lot of these places there are no radiologists, so uh, they are sent uh, sent to some other location to read, and sometimes it takes weeks to uh, get that X-ray read. And that patient is still waiting for these putum yeah. tests until that yeah. time happens.
0: So you're making the whole system more efficient because you're improving the, well, I suppose, the accuracy before they then decide to get a test. So they're you know they're a bit further down before they're um, before they're making that decision. So I, I can see I can see obviously how that's going to completely broaden access to um, people getting the right diagnoses basically because you're you're increasing the sensitivity and specificity of the whole system, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. And, and the thing is that, I mean, something that you used to take, I mean, a person who used to be diagnosed, like, let's say, two weeks, three weeks later is now diagnosed within the same day. I mean, within a minute, we can tell uh, whether that x-ray is positive mm. uh, or negative for TB. If it's positive for TB, you uh, do the uh, collect sputum and do the microbiological test. Yeah. And, and then yeah. you're done. So you can basically uh, confirm TB within a few hours yeah. versus uh, taking days to do it and uh, that's that's
0: incredible it's a really it's a really specific value proposition isn't it i remember when i i spoke to you about the forbes article that that i wrote about you guys based on what you've done in the nhs you know that's what one thing that really struck me is that whilst at the top of this part of the conversation you said here's all the things we can do we can tell you whether it's normal or not we can tell you whether it's got this that and the other we can compete with radiologists for how accurate it is and and you know how how much we can even be almost like a an outsource radiologist but actually the what what you've ended up actually doing for hospitals is very specific and i like that because it's it's what the hospital actually needs it's what the system actually needs like in your tuberculosis example what you're not saying is oh well just run everybody through an x-ray and we'll tell you you know yes or no and you can sack all your doctors and we don't need radiologists anymore that's absolutely not what you're saying you're saying we can make the in this example you can make the system more efficient and actually you know we can then redirect services where it needs and those radiologists who have skills to do different things can do those different things and make the whole system better and make the population better um and better cared for i I think that that's what's really nice about what you guys are doing and it's similar for your covid19 product isn't it um what do you want to explain what you're doing around that as well? Because it's a similar kind of premise.
1: It's a similar kind of premise. So there are two types. I mean, in fact, three types of use cases for a COVID-19 product. One is that um, just like tuberculosis, there are uh, very, I mean, uh, in this, in the Southeast Asian, South Asian geography, there are all these areas where there's a, a huge population living uh, very close to each other in a, in a very small area. Right. And so mm. what, what uh, people are doing is uh, both in India and Pakistan, we are, Using this is that you have got mobile vans uh, with X-ray units within the van, and uh, they there are, there are health workers who are uh, in the van. And so they would go and park them, park the van in a uh, highly vulnerable um, uh, locality, uh, and uh, so where there are let's say lots of COVID-19 positives, right, or where lots of COVID-19 positives came from, and you would go there, you would park the van there, and uh, you would go door to door checking if people have symptoms, and if people have symptoms then you would ask them to come in uh, into the van for a chest x-ray. And uh, if the chest x-ray is positive for COVID-19, again, uh, we are not diagnosing COVID-19. We can mm. only detect certain findings indicative of COVID-19. Uh, so, for example, we can detect ground glass opacities. We can tell you that they are bilateral, they are peripheral. Mm. And based upon that, you can the size of those opacities. And based upon that, we can create a COVID score of high, medium, low, uh, or none. So no COVID, no COVID mm. risk. And so that, based upon that, now you can say, okay, these people who are high and medium can now, uh, you can collect a swab uh, for them mm-hmm. and the swabs are then taken back to the hospital and tested. So something where, I mean, there was no testing available for these people who are um, in um, uh, low income uh, geographies, but now you have brought in the testing facility to, to their homes
0: and it's the same thing isn't it because you're you're increasing the specificity of that care pathway thus making it more efficient because the people that are going to deteriorate that might not have had the opportunity to get tested end up getting tested and similarly those that you know the worried well are are, are completely um, reassured and and nothing more needs to be done if they end up scoring low or none right so yeah it's nice and and it got adopted in a version of that got adopted in the NHS, didn't it? Um, The Royal Bolton. And that's what I ended up writing about in Forbes. Um, and And that, and that again was really interesting to me because it was, an example of solving a really specific problem and i think i even wrote in the article you know it's not this isn't going to autonomously diagnose anyone this isn't going to replace any radiologists this this might not even reduce a huge amount of work but what it is going to do is add another layer of clinical information and and that was because just as you've described it as being part of the van and, and going in and getting that testing, getting that score done, that same thing is being used on COVID-19 patients as they progress through their disease process. And so um, my understanding of, of what w- when you told me was that for a covid-19 patient in a hospital there when they have their chest x-rays done every day every half a day sometimes i imagine to track the progress your algorithm is is explaining a few different things to them in terms of you know what is the exact percentage of the lung that's being um taken over at the moment what is the exact this that and the other so have i got that right absolutely
1: absolutely exactly that so that is exactly what nhs is using it for right now
0: and yeah, and as and as I say, I think you know it's an interesting point, right? That I th- I think. A lot of the conversation, and I spoke to Hugh Harvey about this actually when he came on the podcast, that when AI first came about in radiology, there was a lot of scaremongering about it's going to take radiologist jobs, it's going to do all these things. And I'm sure that when when you say things like, I want to go up against the radiologist and prove my algorithm can pass this test and all the rest of it, there's probably people that are kind of cringing, thinking like, oh no, is he trying to come after our jobs? But that's absolutely not what you're doing, I imagine.
1: No, that's not. I mean, so I think... I think it's important to prove the algorithm's accuracy, and which is where uh, I would say things like this. But reality is, I mean, if you look at autonomous cars, I'm in a different field, but uh, autonomous cars uh, might be a reality right now. But there are so many things that need to happen to uh, make autonomous cars actually come Mm -hmm. on the road, right? And there are regulatory aspects, there are, uh, I mean, even one person who loses his life, his or her life because of an autonomous car. I mean, that becomes a, such a big issue, right? This happened in yeah. uh, with Uber in Phoenix. And yeah. uh, it's, it's, I mean, Tesla, there was a crash in uh, the Bay Area. So all of these, I mean, you have to be uh, very careful, I mean, especially with AI technologies. And even if, I mean, we are more accurate and we can prove that we are more accurate than a radiologist, I think it is still um, going to be uh, some time before we can actually replace radiologists, right? So that's mm. not something that you want to do or we want to do because finally, when a radiologist signs off on a report for a patient, that person is taking liability yeah. that if, if that if something is wrong, I am liable for uh, for I mean creating that wrong report, right? And so yeah. there are there are many things that uh, the human touch uh, is bringing in, and we don't want to replace that. I mean that's not where we are. I mean I think for us the value is uh, in fact in not even I mean what we realized is that there are so many places where the radiologists cannot go to. I mean uh, these mobile vans uh, mm. in let's say, rural districts or even in uh, these uh, slums in uh, Mumbai, I mean, you don't, you cannot get a radiologist there. I mean, and um, AI is the only way you can solve these problems, I mean, especially uh, if uh, AI is good enough. I mean, you have to have good, accurate AI, but uh, yeah. AI is the only way you can solve the problems. And, of course, uh, you can assist a lot of radiologists, a lot of doctors in interpreting X-rays. So even X-rays, for example, a lot of them are not uh, reported by radiologists. They are reported by general practitioners. And so in that case, you can assist them in reporting that X-ray. And the other thing which I have also seen is today, I mean, um, uh, this is something which is, I mean, uh, I've heard from a lot of radiologists is that most radiologists now uh, are not so interested in reading X-rays. So they would rather read a three D scan or an MRI. And uh, a lot of radiologists tell me that I may not be as good at reading an X-ray as I was, let's say, 10 years ago. Or I mean, uh, and the newer generation that is becoming radiologists is certainly not, as good as uh, me in reading <laughs> that X-ray, so so that's something which uh, I have. I mean, uh, people have told me, and I think uh, I mean I don't know how much uh, if there is a quantification to that, but uh, <laughs> certainly, certainly there is a sense that the uh, ability to read X-rays is going down yeah. across the world. Yeah. Sure, because it's, it's a simple modality. It's a, it's a basic modality.
0: Sure, and I think. um you know, if we're going to increase quality, if we're going to reduce costs, if we're going to make healthcare better for everybody, then AI is one of the clear ways that we're going to do that even within the next few years. And I think, you know, prospective studies are being done. People like you guys are actually getting bought. You're getting CE marked, FDA, but you know, all of this is happening right now. It's an incredibly exciting time for AI, particularly in radiology, where there's a clear use case and a few, <laughs> a few clear use cases. Um, and I really look forward to seeing how you guys do and you know the other ai companies out there that are not only radiology but in different fields i think it's a really incredible um time to be looking at this stuff and if there's anybody listening that wants to know a bit more then um, feel free to ping me a message and i can let you know the the good ai companies around the world to watch um, but prashant it's been an absolute pleasure having you on sir i've i've loved i've loved learning about this learning about your background has been so fascinating i think the way that you've got this kind of whole I was going to say whole sector view, but it's way beyond that because of all the different sectors you've been in in data science and the way that you view data science, the fact you've been in it since the nineties, I think so many people will be able to learn from you. And I think, um, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been fascinating for me having you on, but I'm sure there'll be plenty of people listening that might want to follow you or, um, hear more from you. So if people want to get in touch with you or indeed cure.ai, what's the best way for them to find you?
1: um and the best way for them to reach out to me is uh, through my email which is my first name prashant.warrior at uh, cure.ai
0: perfect and i'll put that in the description of the episode for everybody to click on and prashant um we get a lot of people listening to this podcast so everything from entrepreneurs investors uh corporates clinicians managers in hospitals have you got any asks of our audience that you want to close us out with
1: i think uh, what my uh, my only ask is that uh I mean, there is uh, a lot of hype around AI. People talk about AI as if it's going to do everything for you. It can do a lot of cool things, and it can really add value. And what happens is that because of the hype, people feel like I mean, what AI achieves is not good enough, right? But AI is doing a lot, and I think there are, uh, especially in healthcare and radiology, there are there are real use cases. There are lots of people who are uh, using AI, deploying AI, and uh, I think there is a lot more to come. So um I, I would say that um we should i mean i i, I would want to work together with um, a lot of healthcare organizations to um help them adopt ai and um, get them the uh, value of ai within their organization
0: amazing thank you so much prashant and have a have a wonderful day sir
1: thank you so much james it was a pleasure being on this podcast uh thanks for your time today
0: hey everyone thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode Remember to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.